What if Jesus wrote you a letter? What if he wrote us, Meadowbrook Baptist Church, a letter? Would he be pleased with us? How might he challenge us? What would he say to us? Does he know when we meet and what we do? The songs we sing, the words we say, the message we hear, does he go with us? Does he see where we go and what we do? Do we love him and the things of him? Are we excited about the gospel of Jesus? Sending. Are we too comfortable with immorality and idolatry? Are we confident in his return? Will he reward us? Whoever has ears. Whoever has ears. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That famous line from Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities was used to describe London and Paris, and it also would fit with the church that we're going to look at today um, in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Revelation 2. Throughout our sermon series in Revelation, we have been exploring Jesus' letters to seven churches dispersed around Asia Minor. Each church has its own challenges and moments of success and moments of failure, yet through each of these, the story of faithfulness for each church is shown. And as Christians looking at this text today, we realize that the words to those churches are also words to us today. Before we dive into the words today to the church at Smyrna, let me give you some background and introduce you to the town of Smyrna. Thinking of Dickens' best of times, Smyrna was a place to be. It was an exciting city about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was near the sea and was seen as a destination location. It was a place you wanted to go to have a good experience and to have a good time. Think of maybe a modern-day Las Vegas. This city was uh, known for its beauty, for its size, and for its desirability. The coins from Smyrna talked about the greatest in Asia, the first in Asia, in beauty and size. Smyrna was the best of times. It was truly the place to be. There was lots of money and influence and excitement happening in this great city. Smyrna still stands today as the modern-day city of Izmir, Turkey. If you look on the map, it is on the left-hand side, kind of over near the ocean. Uh, the next image on the screen is if you were to go to Izmir, Turkey today, that's a picture of one of the things you would see. It's a beautiful city, still a popular tourist destination for those who live in the Middle East. It is the best of times in Smyrna. But as Dickens said, the best of times is always followed up by the worst of times. In the worst of times, we think about the Christian's experience in Smyrna. Smyrna was a pagan city. It was marked by multiple gods and multiple religions. But the major two religious players there were the Romans and the Jews. The Romans believed that the emperor Caesar was Lord and should be worshipped as God. While the Jews saw Christianity as a cult that was polluting their Judaism with false teaching. Followers of Jesus making the claim that Jesus was Lord offended both the Romans who thought that the Roman ideal of Caesar is Lord is what should be pursued while the Jews were offended because they the Jews failed to recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah. The Christians find themselves as a minority group for their beliefs opposed by both leading systems and on the edge of society. 
The town of Smyrna also points to the idea of the worst of times. The word Smyrna is the same word that we get the word myrrh from. And if you remember back to after Jesus was born, the wise men came to visit Jesus with gifts. They brought three gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is a gift that is an odd gift for a baby to be born in a baby shower type moment. Myrrh is an embalming fluid and an embalming spice that would be used for the dead. Obviously, uh, this one of the three kings that brought the gifts should have consulted his wife before bringing that to the party. And as he brought the, as we think about myrrh, we see myrrh as a, something that was crushed. And when it was crushed, the smell would come out and it would have its usefulness. And so when we see the city of myrrh, we see a church that will be crushed by oppression and persecution. Yet through their suffering, Jesus will be glorified and his gospel will be spread. In reflecting on the persecution in the early church, church historian Tertullian said this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When you see a church that grows, it's growing because people look at Christianity and view Christianity as something authentic. Unlike a world that we live in today where Christianity might get you benefits at work or elected for political office, their world for Christianity is a world where they were persecuted. And when you think about one person giving their life for an ideal, if it was one person that gave their life for something and died, we might write them off as someone who's crazy, a little off, there's something wrong with them. But when we see more and more people that are giving their lives for their faith, people begin to look at them and see there's something different about them. Where's the hope? Where's the drive? What could cause these people to say, my life here and now is not worth it because there's something greater and something more? And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of something big. I want to be a part of a revolution. I want to be a part of something to change the world. And the gospel was such a revolution. It woke up the world and it changed the world. And we stand here today in this church worshiping a Savior because these people were willing to give their lives and die for their faith. Just as Jesus' spilled blood led to our redemption, the spilled blood of the martyrs of the early church led to the growth of this Christianity. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2, stand with me, and we're going to read verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the church at Smyrna that stands as a faithful witness to walking faithfully with you in the midst of difficult times. God, today I pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would show us a Jesus who's worth following with our lives and with our deaths. And a Jesus who took the place for us and changed everything. God, be with us today. Speak through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can grab a seat. As Pastor Chris established last week, there's a pattern to these letters. 
The letters begin with a picture of Jesus. Then they talk about the circumstance and the situation with the church. Then it moves on to positive things about what the church is doing well, what he wants to encourage them in. And then it moves on to negatives that the church is struggling with and then ends with a call to listen. It's like the video said, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Unlike all the other letters, the letter to the church at Smyrna does not include anything negative. There's no corrections. It's merely a call to persevere because you see this church stands in the midst of trial and in the midst of persecution. And God calls them to be faithful. And my hope as we look at this text today is that we would be encouraged that in our lives and in our walks where we find ourselves that we would be faithful as well. The text begins on your sheet with the character of Jesus. The character of Jesus. Verse 8. To the angel and the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus establishes himself first as the first and the last. The first and the last. This is the first picture of the character of Jesus we see in this text. He's the beginning and the end. In Greek, Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and Omega, which is the first Greek letter and the last Greek letter. He's before all things and will stand after all things. Jesus defines both the beginning and end of time, the beginning and end of the universe, the beginning and end of life, the beginning and end of everything. He reigns sovereignly over life itself as God. In Revelation 1.8, we see Jesus referring to himself in this way. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As Smyrna stands with their little coins that say that we're the first in Asia, Jesus says, I'm not just the first in Asia. I'm the first in the whole world. I'm the first in the whole universe. I'm the beginning and not just the beginning. I'm the end. I'm the ultimate. I am God himself. And so a church under persecution is reminded that even though they're in a city that boasts of their own success and their own status, that Jesus introduced himself with an eternal status. He's one that's greater and higher and above everything else. He is the first and the last. But it doesn't stop there. The verse goes on, who died and came to life. Second, we see that Jesus is the death defeater. The death defeater. To a church facing the imminent fear of death and persecution, Jesus stands as the one who defeated death. Because of the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has taken away the ultimate sting from death. He redefines death as a temporary state. Death moves from a walk into the unknown into a walk into eternity with a God who went before you into heaven. Paul says it this way, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ stands as the victor over death. Those who stand in potentially bad situations can look to Jesus. They can realize that Jesus is the one who was faithful, that Jesus preceded them in death by going to the cross, by defeating death, by taking away its power, by taking away its sting. And as they follow Jesus into the unknown, which may even be their death, they walk into eternity alongside Jesus, who's the victor. He's the victor over death. And so the church can face persecution and death because Jesus went before them into death at the cross. And he defeated death at the resurrection. Meet this Jesus. He's the first and the last. We look at death, which is so many people's greatest fear. Jesus stares death in the face and said, I defeated you. This is the God that we have hope in. 
This is the God who this church can find comfort and strength in in the middle of their persecution. So we see the character of Christ. Next we see the status of the church. The status of the church. Verse 9. He says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. We see the church is first facing tribulation and poverty. The church is facing tribulation and poverty. Remember, they stand against the religious establishment. We live in, they live in a world where there's multiple gods in Smyrna. You think about the idea of a polytheistic religion. There's a um, Hindu temple in Atlanta that we've been to several times. And in a Hindu temple, when you walk in, you see different gods for different purposes. So the first god may be the money god. You're having money problems, you go pray to the money god, hope it works out. You may want some children, go to the fertility god, hope that works out. Or may want some rain, go to the rain god and hope that works out. You live in a world where it seems like everyone is accepted. It doesn't matter what you are as a god and what your function is, you seem accepted. But... What you see in this text and what we see in our day in a world of many gods and many religions is that when one god comes in and says, hey, I'm the ultimate, hey, I'm Lord over all, hey, I'm sovereign, hey, I'm the greatest, all these are like weak, pointless, helpless gods compared to me. When God reduces himself to a function that I get from a transaction standpoint, I need money, I play to the money god, he's going to help me out, life's going to be good, to a god that reigns sovereign over all, that's when the openness stops. That's when the tolerance stops. That's when the acceptance stops because there's one God that claims that he reigns over all. And as people following that God, the Christians are seen as atheists by the Romans because they fail to worship Caesar. You're failing to believe in our God who's Caesar, you're an atheist. And then the Jews see them as idolaters because they fail to worship Yahweh in the way they expected them to. The church stands against the religious environment. The church stands as opposed to that, and they face persecution, and they face challenge, and they face eventually death because of their belief in this Jesus who died on the cross and came back to life and changed everything for them. We see tribulation coming from all angles. We see that they're in poverty. The poverty here is a picture of Christians being denied potential economic opportunities. Hey, you're the crazy person that believes these crazy things over here. I don't know that I want you working at my company. I don't know that I want to give you a fair deal on a business trade because you're the crazy person. They're facing tribulation and poverty. And then second, we see that they're slandered by those who are falsely representing God. Slandered by those who are falsely representing God. It says in the second part of verse 9, Those who say they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. The church is being labeled by people as a false religion, yet those who claim to represent the true religion were not. The term synagogue of Satan here means that since the Jews in the temple had missed Jesus as the Messiah, they were now being used as a tool of Satan to tear down the church. That the religion that they taught that lacked gospel, that lacked God, that lacked Jesus was a false religion now because they'd missed the Messiah they missed the one that all of their Old Testament scriptures had pointed to. And then Satan stands as this driver of lies and the leader of this persecution. Satan is the one who's leading this synagogue. This place where Yahweh used to be worshipped as God has now become a place that Satan is leading. People are misguided, with this misguided and false faith are standing in places of judgment and persecution over those who believe in the true faith of walking with Jesus. 
And what's interesting is in their persecution, both the Romans and the Jews feel justified in what they're doing. The Romans, well, they're not worshiping Caesar. Everybody worships Caesar. Caesar's obviously Lord, because if you question it, there's a bloody cross on the side of the road we can set you up with. Or you see on the other side the Jews, and the Jews go, well, we're doing God a favor because we're shutting down this heresy. We're shutting down this thing that is wrong, and they feel like they're removing false teaching and that they're justified in doing that. To a church that finds themselves on the fringes of society and culture, standing opposed to the ideologies of that culture, Jesus comes with words of life and words of hope. The hope in Jesus, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The hope from Jesus is this. First, do not fear the coming suffering. Do not fear the coming suffering. Notice Jesus doesn't say it's all going to be okay. That tomorrow's a better day. That suffering will end. That peace will come and it will all be okay. Now Jesus, who went before the church in suffering at the cross, reminds them not to fear suffering. The one who preceded them in suffering at the cross will walk faithfully with them in the midst of their suffering. You see that the devil is noted in here. It says that the devil is the one who's driving the suffering. This connects back to verse 9 with the synagogue of Satan. What we see here is this persecution is not merely a small instance. It's not merely bad luck for the church at Smyrna or a bad day or stuff not going the way they wanted it to. This suffering is part of a global battle that is going on. There's a global spiritual battle, a cosmic story of spiritual warfare. This suffering is due to something greater going on than this one person's experience. As we're walking through the book of Revelation, there are sections in Revelation that really smart people with lots of degrees will disagree with what it means. But the big point, if you could put one big picture over Revelation, is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Christ is the victor. And so when these people face persecution in this cosmic battle, they remember that the victor is King Jesus. And he's already won the war. And so when we think about this battle and this moment and this struggle and how big this is for the people who are living it and how great of a situation they find themselves in, they're reminded that this is a battle on the grand scheme of this massive war. And guess what the ending of the war is? That Christ is the victor. And they get to walk with Christ the victor into heaven and into eternity because Christ has won the war and that hope is found in him. The battle may rage and look like it's going to be a defeat, but Jesus wins the war. That's why they have hope. That's why they can give their lives. It's because they know the end of the story. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I watch a movie, someone will ruin the ending for me. And when you watch a movie and you get to the end, if you know what's going to happen at the end of the movie, the moment where you're wondering if the character's going to survive, if hope's going to happen, those moments are easier because you know the end. That's how we are. We know the end. Christ is going to return and Christ is the victor. And so Jesus says that this church is going to, in a battle, but they're going to face trials and tribulations. It says that some of you will be thrown into prison. That this is a test that may get worse. But it's still a test. 
the test is temporary. And it says that for 10 days you may have tribulation. I don't know if you've ever read Revelation before or know much about it, but 10 days in Revelation is not 10 literal days. There's lots of commentary debate over what this means. But what we do know it means is that 10 days means there's a beginning and there's an ending. And that this is short compared to eternity. On the grand scheme of things, this persecution, this struggle they're facing, this place where they find themselves is short compared to eternity. Christ is the victor. Persecution is short. And eternity is where true life is, and that's where it matters. So Jesus moves on to speak of eternity, and he says this, second part of verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The second hope from Jesus, death is a doorway into eternal life. Death is a doorway into eternal life. Jesus reframes death itself for the church at Smyrna. Death leads to life. Faithfulness in this life to Jesus, even in the challenges of persecution and even death, lead to the crown of life. Jesus didn't just endure persecution for us. He paid the price for us, for our sin. And so one day when we get to heaven, we can experience his rest. We can walk into a place where there's no more suffering, where there's no more pain, where there's no more crying. When you think of my favorite phrase from Revelation is that Jesus looks at them and says, I'm going to make all things new. We wait for that moment that Jesus comes and makes everything new and eternity becomes, death becomes that doorway. The fear is gone. The concern is gone. The walking into the darkness is gone because Jesus goes with us. And in the middle of the persecution, the church is reminded that eternity is where true life is and we're living forever with Jesus awaits those who follow him. Death is gain, Paul said. Reframes hope. Do not fear the coming suffering and death is a doorway to eternal life, which leads to last the call to listen. The call to listen. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear. With the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. Each one of these letters ends with, whoever has an ear, let him hear. The redundancy of the idea of the ear points to like, listen up. Like, if you miss everything else, if you've checked out the whole time, the author is pulling you in to say, listen up, catch this. This is the one thing. The one who conquers doesn't face the second death. The one who conquers does not face the second death. That's the final statement that's used to summarize this message to the church at Smyrna. It is that their own faithfulness to follow Jesus on earth leads to his own faithfulness to them in heaven. No matter how challenging and hard life becomes, no matter how much persecution and hardships the church may face, death is not the end but a doorway to true life. The church is called to listen up, to be faithful, to trust that Christ is the victor and the death defeater, and the first and the last who will be faithful to his church to the very end. This morning we want to end our time together in God's word by looking at one such person from the church at Smyrna. Let me introduce you to Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John who wrote the book of Revelation. Polycarp uh, was a leader in the church at Smyrna and eventually became the pastor. Um, Being the pastor and as times in Smyrna got worse and worse, Polycarp became the center of persecution. We do not know if Polycarp was at the church when this letter was written or was pastoring the church when this letter was written, 
But what Polycarp embraced and what Polycarp experienced point to the message that's in this letter. In the year 156 AD, Polycarp found himself burning at the stake for his faith. We're going to watch a video clip in a second, and it's going to walk you through the narrative of this moment. Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. For years have I been served by him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. As the crowd gathers sticks for the fire, Polycarp is brought to be burned at the stake. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers in every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of the soul and body, through immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and have fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. The same church historian that recorded those final words from Polycarp said that as the flames began to engulf him, they weren't sure that he was dead. So they went and stabbed him to ensure that he had died for his faith. Polycarp faced persecution and death as a martyr because he believed that Jesus was the victor. He believed that eternal life was the true life. And he believed that following Jesus was worth it no matter what it cost him. Commentator James Hamilton describes it this way. God gets the glory for martyrs because he is the one who's convinced him that his love is better than life. He's the one who's worth their deaths declare. He is the one who has so satisfied their hearts that they cannot deny him. They're not able to do so. And they do not want to do so because they want to be faithful to, the, to him. Though we may not find ourselves under persecution like the church at Smyrna, Smyrna, let us be the church that is found faithful to Jesus in both our lives and in our deaths. You see, a moment like Polycarp giving his life doesn't come out of the blue. It's a moment of faithfulness on a whole life of faithfulness. A whole life of believing that following Jesus is worth it. That the gospel is true. That eternity is real. That Jesus is the victor. That eternal life is the true life. And as we live from that perspective, it changes who we are completely. It gives us the strength to stand up to people who may think what we believe is wrong. 
It gives us the strength to be people who live a gospel that is compelling to the world around us. It gives us the strength to not just be cultural Christians that show up to church on a Sunday and a Wednesday, but to be transformational Christians that go to work on Monday and Tuesday in school and everywhere we find ourselves this week and live captivated by this message that has hopefully changed our lives and can transform the world. The hope for the world is not found in Washington. The hope for the world is found in Jesus and his transforming power. And let us cling to that and live for that. May we faithfully follow Jesus the victor as he leads us through this life to our eternal victory with him. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the example of Polycarp and the church at Smyrna. God, people who believe that you were worth everything and worth giving everything for. God, help us to be people who live lives of faithfulness. God, people who walk with you and who believe, truly believe that you're the victor, that true life is found in you, and that the greatest thing we can live for is that moment when we open our eyes in eternity and see you face to face and you tell us, well done. God, help us to live for that day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ben.